Hi, my name's Brandon. And if you're anything like me, you need music to cope with the real world. But if you're anything like me, the music you pick won't let you escape reality. So if you're anything like me, you call your friends and you start a podcast. Oh, is that what we're doing? <sighs> is get into the groove the podcast where we find a groove groove and we get into it okay i'm with my very good friend artist designer fashionista everyone's favorite ride or die it's miss jean genie ah, thank Hi. You. Uh, Stop. how wow. are you i'm very good today wow after that that was really nice oh, please uh <laughs> you've earned every title thank all you. of them listen um so I have a question for you. Thank we, you. you and I together, have seen shows. Mm-hmm. I have a list. We've seen Cage the Elephant, In the Valley Below, White Reaper, Glass Animals, Alabama Shakes, Amanda Palmer, Jukebox the Ghost. We have seen quite a lot of people. Okay, and we yeah. had plans to see people in this 2020. Let me ask you, which one was the toughest blow? Which concert did you want to see the most this year that got ripped away from you? I wanted to see Perfume Genius with Tame Impala. I wanted to see Perfume mm. Genius, mm-hmm. and it was a bonus that Tame Impala was there. I wanted to see Perfume yeah, Genius. Tame Impala was the headliner. At Sprint Center. Oh, I got to tell you, I... It hurt a lot. Perfume Genius had a live stream last weekend. You did. I watched it. I was emotional. It was good. I it bet. was amazing. I saw a few clips from it. Mm. It was so good. Okay, um, we're not the only two suckers in this room. Um, I'm also here with Voice of a Goddess. Stop it! And the best what? kept oh secret <laughs> in KCMO. <laughs> hey! It's Melissa. Hello. Now, uh, I consider you to kind of be like the person who introduces me to some of the a lot of music. You introduced me to a lot of music, especially in road trips. Yes. Um, I learned about Roman's Revenge because of you. Yes. I was traumatized. Yes. Okay. <laughs> As was my intention. It worked. It worked. Yeah, well. <laughs> What's the most recent album you've been obsessed with? Oh. Um, the Good Life by Sammy Ray. It's a 2018 oh, right. EP she put out. Yeah, Colton already knew. Answer. Y'all already knew. I'm that question. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just kind of discovered her through a playlist that popped up and, um, I, I just keep listening to her on repeat and I can't stop. Her and I had a whole conversation the other day about how she had to debate with herself whether she was going to buy all of the sheet music for the album. And I had to talk to her and she was like, it's, each song is only $7. And I'm like, that's a lot for piece <laughs> sheet music. No, it was worth but it. But then, then I, then I found one that was all the songs that was, Thirty dollars instead of oh. yeah. like fifty. Colton regularly or saves my life, so yes, yeah, no. Yeah. Did you get it? I haven't bought it yet. No, Mm-mm. but it's there. Yeah, it's there. It's in your. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's gonna happen. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, the other sultry voice you just heard, <laughs> um, is a singer, a songwriter, a guitarist, 
And everyone's favorite mythical creature, Jolly Giant, <laughs> otherwise known as Colton. Hey. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm yeah. excited to uh, to do this. Yeah. We've been talking about it for a long time. We truly have. Let me ask you. What are we doing? Well, we are going to talk about some different albums that, um, for a variety of reasons, but I think the main reasons are uh, ones that were really divisive when they came out or almost didn't get made, or some that were flops when they came out and years later became kind of like a definitive work for that artist. Um, some of them you may know, some of them you might not, um, but they all have really interesting stories behind them. So. Yeah, so what's, what are we talking about today? What are we talking about this week? Well, I'm very excited to talk about this because uh, this is one of my favorite albums of all time. I've listened to it countless times, as I'm sure many other people have. Um, but we're going to talk about What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the beginning of the summer, we watched... Spike Lee's latest joint, mm-hmm. um, The Five Bloods. Uh, Terrific. Oh, my God. So good. <sighs> it's already been taken down to Sad Town. Uh, it's one of Chadwick Boseman's last, like, movies. Mm. It's so good. Um, but it uses almost exclusively, um, yeah, minus uh, some underscore, songs from this album. There's underscore, and there is one other Marvin Gaye song that is not on What's Going On, but it's still primarily Marvin Gaye. What year did this album come out? 1971. Yes. So, I don't quite remember 1971. (laughs) I think I know where I come (laughs) in next. Jeannie, bring us up to speed. What's happening in 1971? Um, I think the most notable detail uh, that ties in specifically to this album is that the Vietnam War at this point had been going on for like 15 or 16 years, three presidents had gone through the like Vietnam War and uh, nothing had changed. Nobody knew what the progress was. Nobody knew what the end goal was. Nobody knew shit about it. Um, just that it was still going on. People were being drafted into it. And um, as it continued to go on and on and on, there had been more and more protests building up against it. So that's a really central theme to the album um, and an important detail. And then I guess other things to remember is we just come through the 60s. So uh, I guess we could talk about Motown Records specifically. Um, I don't know if anybody else has anything to chime in. Um, I'd say some other major things that have happened up to this point would be uh, the Summer of Love in 1967. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like <coughs> one of the bigger moments of the hippie movement in the 60s. And also, uh, Woodstock has happened at this point in time, yes. uh, 1969. I was going to say the Civil Rights Act. Yes, Civil <laughs> Rights Act is another important one. Um, basically, it's kind of something people talk about a lot in history, how in the 60s, towards the end of the 60s, especially with the Summer of Love and all this, you have this kind of bright, sunshiny, utopia-type movement going on with the hippies, and then the Vietnam War just keeps dragging on, and there seems to be no end in sight. So then it starts flipping more towards kind of a darker, uh, almost more aggressive type of sound. You get a lot of heavier bands at this time frame. Uh, Led Zeppelin starts in 1969. Well, and also during this time, the Vietnam War was one of the first wars that was televised. So this yes. was in everybody's mm-hmm. living rooms. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just this, this you know, It was real thing. Yeah, that people, just, yeah. People were seeing war. It was war. real to everybody. So yeah, a very dark 
atmosphere in the early 70s is basically the overarching theme. And I think it was one of the first times the American people really felt part of American politics. Like, yeah. we really felt like we had to say something and have a voice and mm-hmm. speak out, so. Mm-hmm. What was going on in Marvin's life? Woo! Oh. Child. Child. There's a lot going on in Marvin's life at this time. <laughs> Tell us about it. So he had finally gained some commercial success like in the mid-60s. He'd been with Motown since 1960, married Anna Gordy, um, married her, but didn't have great commercial success because he wanted to do jazz initially. He wanted to be like the next Frank Sinatra, and it didn't work. Um, So he ended up changing his sound, got some success in the mid-60s, but when he really hit big was when he paired up with Tammy Terrell Mm -hmm. as a duet partner. And they did, you know, Anna Mountain High, you know, et cetera. So she was pretty much his muse for the next few years until she got diagnosed with a brain tumor in 1967. She collapsed at a concert. So she spent the next three years recording but not performing with him. Was the, con- was the concert with? With Marvin Gaye. She collapsed in his arms. Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah. And it's very, their relationship, she was pretty much his guiding light for the time that they worked together. Yeah, they were very, very close. Losing her was a very big moment. So fast forward, she's gone through Mm. all this treatment, et cetera, and she passes away in March of 1970. So this is right before Marvin got this song from Obi Benson and started this whole project sort of thing. So he was in grieving, he was in mourning, he was in completely in a depression. depression. And he had pulled back. He had completely kind of like exonated everybody in his life and stopped talking to everybody, but was paying attention to the news for the first time. Like he was really paying attention to what was going on in the world for the first time. And that was starting to kind of shape how he wanted to continue. Like he was really looking at mortality and his own life and everybody else's lives and what was going on in the world. And that was kind of changing how he was looking at music because he was just singing a whole bunch of love songs to this point. And now it didn't feel like that was worth it. There's a quote that's actually from 1965 from him where I don't remember the exact quote, but he's talking about seeing all these things happening in the world. And I think this in particular um, was referencing the Watts riot. Yes. um, Where he sees all these injustices happening in the world. So how can he keep writing love songs? Right. And this is 1965. So this This is is before even all of this happened. Yeah. Familiar. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Obi Benson. Obi Benson. Hello. How does he? <laughs> what does he give us? Obi Benson was one of the founding members of the Four Tops, and if y'all don't know, y'all little youngins out there don't know who the Four Tops are. You need to do some googling. Okay. <laughs> They're one of the original Motown acts, and they had a string of hits, etc. But they were in San Francisco um, on a tour. And he witnessed an altercation between some police and some um, African-American citizens. And he kind of got the idea for what's going on and started shopping the song idea around to people. Um, and nobody would take it, obviously. Four Tops wouldn't take it. They didn't want a protest song at all. It's too political. Joan right. Baez was another person that he ran it by. And I just want to interject want here. The, evi- the event that is being referred to is uh, Bloody Thursday, mm-hmm. um, which was um, 1969. Um, yeah, the Bloody Thursday. It happened in uh, Berkeley, California, and um, there had been so many protests going on that they had declared martial law. Mm-hmm. And there was a particular, um, there was this park. It was like a community park that people were like protesting. They're like, no, like we're not abiding this curfew. We're not going home. Like they had created this park specifically as a space for them. 
Um, and it was a really big deal because, again, things were being televised, but also, like, National Guardsmen fired onto an open crowd of people. Mm-hmm. And, like, this was, like, a really, like... Violence was escalating during the 60s, but this was, again, it was another one of those situations where it was not just, like, a black and white clip on the TV anymore. It was a lot more real for people. Um, And it just, like, it threw him off when he, like, went into writing this. That's where we were. That's where we were. Uh, Well, I was going to ask, Obi Benson did not write... The song, correct. He didn't compose it. No. no. He he had this idea. He had an idea for uh, like what to write a song about. Mm-hmm. And he brought it to Al Cleveland, who then put together the actual music of the song. And Al Cleveland was a established songwriter for the Motown machine. Because if yes. you don't understand yes. what the Motown was, mm-hmm. <laughs> Barry Gordy actually came from the car factories into doing this in Motown. And when he brought Motown to life, he decided to make it exactly like a car factory. So everybody had a job. Every, what you were good at is what you did. So the writers wrote, the singers sang, but nobody really, there weren't a whole lot of people going back and forth until later in their careers, basically. Um, so, But Al Cleveland was one of the like OG songwriters from Motown. Yeah, and there's also... Um, and he wrote for the Four Tops a lot, which is probably why Obi went to him with this. It's also important to point out, too, that um, the very common thing with record labels in general was to have different bands and like backing singers that would be kind of in-house recording Mm -hmm. people. And that's something that a lot of people still do nowadays, but it was just a lot more prevalent back then. Um, And part of the recording process of this, um, uh, Marvin reached outside of those groups of people. So it wasn't just studio musicians doing it, which was kind of unusual, especially for him at that time. So, Obi Benson has this idea for a song. Al Cleveland is composing it. Mm-hmm. It somehow gets into Marvin Gaye's hands. Yeah, so like Melissa was saying, it gets shopped around a lot um, by Obi Benson mm-hmm. trying to find different people to do it. And he finally brings it to Marvin Gaye, and Marvin adds his own experiences into it. Right. Um, not just his Originally, own, he said no. He wanted yes. the originals, the originals, the group, sorry, mm-hmm. the originals to sing the song. And Obi Bones was like, nah, I don't want them to sing the song. If anybody's going to do it, you're going to do it. And if you do it, I will give you the royalties. Like, But if you don't do it, you're not going to get anything for it or whatever. And so then he was on board. But he was already looking. It was kind of like this parallel universe where Obi's out here with this song trying to get it somewhere. And Marvin's over here having an existential crisis. <laughs> figuring out what he wants to say about his experiences in the world. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So yeah. it's kind of just a perfect melding of timing, really. Yeah. And um, so he takes a song. He adds instrumentation to it. He adds uh, several verses of his own making mm-hmm. that kind of expand upon just the idea of the protests and things like that and di- dives also into the experience of Vietnam War vets returning from home, uh, also poverty and police brutality, all sorts of different things. Also, he brought the neighborhood into that song. Yes, yeah, that's uh, that's what Obi Benson really points out is that he really brings the neighborhood into it. He brings like brings you into the level of just normal everyday people mm-hmm. experiencing all these things that are happening in the world around them. The song, of course, we're referencing is the opening track and uh, first single of this album. What's going on? What's going on? Um, <coughs> I do want to talk about the opening 
like because the opening is just, yes, it's people talking, um, mm-hmm. and the first thing you hear is what's happening, right? You hear mm-hmm. it's like two people yeah. um, hanging out, and it's like they just they're 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 coming together after like I don't know a long time apart, um, and I feel like that like gives us our like first definition of the title of the album, mm-hmm. like it's it's really kind of introducing the audience into the neighborhood, into Marvin Gaye's world. Um, I've definitely always looked at it as like, <coughs> especially the way the song kind of unfolds out of it. Um, what's happening, brother? And it's like one of those days where somebody asks you what's going on and you've just had the longest day. It's, all these things have happened and you just like, all right, and then the song just starts. <laughs> You can actually hear the song start. Like yeah. I, I mm-hmm. say this every time I talk about the track, but like when in the midst of the conversation, you could like it's it's as if you can hear the record start. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's another scene painting, I guess. I don't know. It really a, puts uh, you in the room. An aural uh, landscape, I think, is the or aural soundscape is what you would use. That's exactly <laughs> what I said. Um, yeah, uh, it's black as hell, y'all. <laughs> Let's, let's put it in layman's terms. The whole opening of that song is walking into any black neighborhood in America, even today. That is the kind of greeting you're going to get. That is the kind of sound you're going to hear, no matter where you go. Yeah. With the, even with the first lines, Marvin is letting you know that this album is going to be personal. Yeah. it's gonna, There's going to be a lot to it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so the little bit of history behind this. So this particular song was released by itself initially. So this was released in January of 1971. And Barry Gordy was super reluctant to do this track, not just for the fact that it was a protest song, which um, Obi Benson didn't really view it as a protest song. He said it was about love and understanding. Um, And I think with Gay's additions, he especially brought that aspect out of it. But, more so, Barry was hesitant about um, the sound of it. It was kind of a um, older jazz-esque sounding album, um, and he thought it was kind of behind the times, like it wasn't hip. Mm-hmm. So he was very hesitant to release it. But it was well-received. It was a su- success. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Marvin Gaye got to do uh, this album, um, and I have here that it was recorded in 10 days. Fact check me. Uh, yes. Um, so it, it recorded in 10 days. I think the what writing process. So he released the single in January, and the album was released in May, but they recorded everything in March. So ah. most likely between January and March, he was writing all of the arrangements and lyrics and all that kind of stuff. So he did have a little bit of a time frame of actually writing it, but they recorded the whole thing in 10 days, which considering how much instrumentation is in this album and how a lot of it is very free-flowing, not wholly structured, uh, it's impressive. Who's the saxophonist on this track? The saxophonist, is that right? The the guy who plays the sax. Well, Is that um, this one? Yes. So that particular saxophone line... um, was actually not going to be included. Yeah, he was just right. practicing. Yeah, he was just they, playing around, and Marvin was, was like, cool, that sounds great. Yeah, he thought <laughs> it was a, a demo. Um, and he was a saxophone player from a blues band that uh, Marvin just happened to catch them playing downtown. Wow. 
Now, okay, we're gonna into, we're gonna get into a controversial discussion, you and I, Miss Jean. Because okay. Once this track is over, it fades out. There's a small break. Yes. And then we go into track two. What's happening, brother? And we don't get a break for six tracks. You're correct. And I'm I. D- it has been said that this is this album is a song cycle. It is. It is. <laughs> I don't know what it means. I understand why you think that's where the song cycle starts because we get picked up into this song and are carried along for the next several songs into one continuous cycle with this beautiful strings background that happens. Like I understand why you think that's where the cycle starts. Um, my contention with that lies in the fact that the beginning of the album starts with the line like "Mother, Mother." Yeah. And at the very end, you are right. We finish with it's a it's the callback call at the very yeah. end of Inner City Blues. We'll mother, mother. That. Okay. Which is the only, but I understand why you think. Um, I understand why what's happening, brother, is what. I get where you're going. Well, for why the kids like me, cycle. what's a song cycle? Beginning. A song cycle um, is typically a sequence of songs that are related to each other through a common theme or musical theme. Um, and they're meant to be played in a certain order and as a whole group. Like, you're not really supposed to play them separately. So that's why the singles off of this record um, were kind of unusual because they um, had to be released by themselves. And I think, personally, that's part of my theory as to why, especially um, what's going on and Inner City Blues seems separate from the rest of it. A lot of it, I believe, they had to edit it that way for commercial release. And not only that, they serve as bookends. Um, Though they may seem like they are separate, number one, What's Happening Brother is almost a continuation of the same musical style and theme of uh, what's going on. So it's really not too much of a variation. And then, you know, it's nonstop through the rest of the the album until Inner City Blues. So what is this song about? What's happening, brother? Yeah. What's the inspiration? Where did it come from? Well, so some of the background with this record. So it's a song cycle, like we were saying. Right. Um, it is a song cycle, song cycle in particular about a Vietnam uh, veteran retor- returning to America uh, and experiencing kind of a um, just not good, not good things when he returned home, uh, kind of being rejected and having to live out on the streets, things like that. It was a harsh return home for yes. a long harsh time. return. Yeah. Um, so this track, it's based on... Uh, Marvin Gaye's brother was in the military. Frankie, yeah? They both were in the military. Um, Marvin tried. Yeah. He was in the Air Force. Yeah. <laughs> he... Oh, my God. I think I have it. Um, he was discharged because Marvin Gaye cannot adjust to regimentation and authority. Lazy as hell. <laughs> <laughs> He's an I, artist. I love talking about this particular thing because it reminds me of um, some stories about Jimi Hendrix where he was in the Air Force as well. And whenever they practiced their parachute jumps, he would always land wrong because he didn't want to injure his hands when he landed. <laughs> <laughs> they make music. So he never passed his parachute jumps. <laughs> uh, but Frankie, Frankie went. Frankie went to Frankie Vietnam. Went. He came back. Marvin didn't write him once. Nope. While he was there. He didn't send him a single fucking letter. What? I believe his brother wrote him, though. Am I... 
Yeah, I think that. Frankie was sending letters back Because there was a lot of inspiration drawn from those letters from yes. Frankie for the album. I actually genuinely did not know that Marvin didn't write back, but I knew that Frankie wrote him. So, interesting. The Especially, uh, Gene made a note that uh, veterans often, you know, you had all these people protesting in America at this time, and even though they were protesting the war, uh, veterans were often mistreated right. by protesters. Um, you know, a lot of them were homeless, and they were viewed more so as a nuisance than, you know, the, the very people that they were protesting for. So again, just really bad rap for veterans coming back from the Vietnam War, which is a pretty commonly known fact, but, you know, it's just important to address for this album. I was going to say, because the whole album is told from the perspective of a returning Vietnam yeah. vet. Yeah. So, really so he's asking, brother. what's happening, brother? Yeah. He's genuinely, he's getting a breakdown. He's yeah. returning back to society. And it comes back and he sounds so joyous almost. He's like, what's happening? What's going on? You know, like, it's like he's going up and he's seeing people on the street he used to know. And he's like, hey, what's going on? And it's nothing but this, like, bleak, harsh return. Like, everything. He Suddenly he's like... Wow, I can't get a job. Like, yeah, I was gonna say, can't people that I used to know, like, they aren't around. People are like, there's all kinds of issues. He even makes a note. He's like, is it still like, is it still good dancing at that place we used to go to? Like, is it still fun out? Like, is there anything going on? Yeah, you know how we talked about uh, the beginning of the album, the first song, how it's kind of like going into the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. and I always viewed what's going on as kind of like coming into the neighborhood and like the public like answer to what's going on and like like this is what we talk about and this is how we talk about it as a group of people and then i've always imagined what's happening brother as that private conversation you know mm-hmm. that you have with somebody real, where you real. get to the point where you're just like what is really going on here mm-hmm. like what <laughs> where where we at what's going on what you know what i mean so i'm glad you say that cuz uh, i have a feeling like that with inner city blues, but I want to talk about that when we get to it. Um, so yeah, we'll put a pin in that. Um, so as the song goes on, it goes right into the next track, "Flying High in the Friendly Sky." Um, I feel like it's pretty obvious what it's about, mm-hmm. <laughs> but what's it about? Well, it's probably about Benzedrine. Huh? <laughs> Please Can you tell us about Benzos. Benzos. Big deal in the Vietnam War, obviously. Um, they were uppers, so they kept these soldiers working, 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 working. And a lot of them got very, very, very addicted and came home addicted to benzos. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of songs, actually, that happened right after the war and even after that that, that reference benzos. But that's what I've always thought Flying High was about, was benzos. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Because they were getting them from the VA. I mean, they were just popping them out like candy still, like even when they came back. So just to keep them quiet. Melissa, I am fascinated because I actually have a different uh, portion yes. of the story. I have a different <laughs> perspective, yes, but I'm really well. interested in what you have to offer. That's cool. Um, for me, I wound up doing this, like, I fell into this weird rabbit hole about it being about heroin. Yeah. And it's because a lot of the Vietnam vets mm-hmm. were coming back addicted to heroin. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of really fun history here. Okay, so they would come back fun. addicted to history or addicted to addicted heroin. Addicted to history. Addicted to history. <laughs> they would come back addicted to heroin because in Vietnam, heroin was stupid cheap and it was smokable. That's how they did it there. Mm-hmm. And so it was super accessible to these soldiers. 
and a lot of them came back like I mean they were like addicted to Super heroin um, and it was so bad that Nixon didn't, like Nixon started this drug force to like he was like we have to research this we have to figure out what's going on and like they I mean they did identify like okay yeah they just have access to it but following up on studies the thing that was really cool that they found out about and this blows my mind to have read this to have found this out because I've sat through like psych classes through college and it was never discussed. It's a really important thing about like addiction, which is they found most of these Vietnam vets did not carry this addiction through their life. Within a year, most of them kicked the fucking habit. Wow. And after a three year period, most of them did not relapse. And so they were able to say eight or eight or nine out of 10 soldiers that returned who had a heroin addiction we're clean of it within a year, which is bonkers. Cause that's so contrary to what we learn in a lot of like addiction conversation. And so much of it was just that they were leaving Vietnam. They weren't in these like harsh conditions that were stressing them out, their environments. So even though it's a, a strange, like, I guess contrast to like the coming back and we hear like so much of this, uh, this conversation of like what's going on. Um, but then also like still like, I guess it just tells you so much of like what was happening, which later I guess we revisit when he says things like war is hell. Um, but like, yeah. No. I also wanted to interject here um, with something I think, so the song obviously is is very tied in with, with drug use, um, or at least it's very strongly suggested. Um, and this is something Jeannie mentioned at one point, but this is I th one of the first uses of a um, term that's a, a slang of the time which is boy, um, he talks about being addicted to the boy, ah. which is heroin. Okay. It's a euphemism for heroin. Um, but for me, the, the bigger thing about this song, beyond just drug use, is Marvin's own feeling of being detached, aloof mm. from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's literally flying high. It's and kind of like zooming out. Yes, it's zooming out, and it, he's... You know, he's using drugs himself. His cocaine addiction has been getting worse in this time frame in his life. And he very obviously sees that he's using it as a mechanism to detach himself from reality. And I feel like he felt so strongly about this particular point that he decided to write a song about how people are just detached from everything that's happening and because they don't want to deal with all the pain and the just the awful things that are happening. I think that's kind of what this song serves for in this album is giving you that the false bliss, the the distractions, the escapism. Yeah, the escapism. Well, this song, Flying High, again, smashes right into the second the next track, Save the Children. Mm -hmm. Save um, the babies. Save the babies. Uh, I want to talk about the 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 fact that it's we hear both spoken word and yeah. like it's sung like as an echo church i kind of thought that it, it's it totally sounded like two different people you and i you had said oh, earlier yeah, his that his speaking voice is totally it doesn't yeah it doesn't compute with his singing voice at all no yeah, yeah. and this was actually um there's a few instances on this album where um Marvin does multiple things for one track because he's not sure what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. So this particular one, he actually had a separate version of just him doing the spoken word of for the entire song. And then he did the vocal version, and he ended up just making up a mashup of the two. Um, and he does something similar 
in um, Mercy, Mercy Me, where he actually had two separate vocal takes for the lead and ended up mashing them together into one. You were talking about how this is church, and this is sort of like the uh, one of oh, the... Oh, this, this is like the epic. This is very... Yeah, this is very... It's church. It all is day. church, yeah. especially when it goes into the save the babies part. Like yes. it is save it is, the babies. Save the yes. babies. Uh, it's religious. It's kind of romantic. Like, um, but then it sort of cuts off and goes back to like the the melody that we've been hearing this whole time. Like, it's as if at the beginning of the song he's asking, uh, or like at the beginning of the album, like, what do we do? Why? What should we do? And who should we do it for? And this song, like, he kind of answers that question. Like, he's like, uh, we have to, I don't know, we have to do it for the future for future generations. Um, and we almost get swept away in that, like, fantasy musically, is what it sounds like. But then reality sets in, and we all realize that we're, we're still here. We have to get to that point. We have to go. Um, I think this, the line that strikes me most in this song is um, when he asks the question, how do we save a world that is destined to die? Oh. Mm. oh, and let's talk about how that is so relevant right now in this <laughs> moment right now. I mean, this whole album in general is is just very relevant to what's going on right now. Um, I was really fascinated, actually, because um, one of the things that interests me is uh, there are a few noted times in Marvin's life where he says that he's here to act as the voice of God. Like mm. he's here as a messenger yeah. of God. And he makes that statement multiple times that multiple people reference it. Like when they talk of him, they're like, yeah. And like a lot of people say, like he had that sort of charismatic thing going on. They're like, he was something, you know, um, I wound up reading this like uh, interview from like, it was like years later, it was like 1984. And like in it, he makes a com like he makes this specific comment where he was like, it's just, it essentially, he's like, it's really hard to be living in a, a world that you know, like, you know this is the end. Like, he's like, I am a messenger of God. Yes, and I no, know. that was that same interview I listened to this morning. I know. Oh, that this, actually, is, like, yes. this is where we're at. I think I have that quote right here, actually, in, in you. your notes, Jeannie, which says, I've been apathetic. I'm sorry, let me, let me start this over. Take uh, two. From an, a 1984 interview, so this is actually sometime after. I've been apathetic because I know the end is near. Sometimes I feel like going off and taking a vacation and enjoying the last 10 or 15 years mm. and forgetting about my message, which I feel is in a form of being a true messenger of God. There we go, yeah. That messenger of God-like thing. Yeah. Consistent through his lifespan, but um, I think heavily highlighted in this song. And what a great segue to the next track. God is love. Uh, let me ask you, Colton, what are your thoughts on this track? <laughs> well, um, do you have feelings? I'm or? always in the minority on this one. I, I am not huge on the two um, more uh, Christianity-focused songs on this album. Um, <laughs> it's not that I don't find them to be gorgeous songs. Ugh. I so I think the contention that is being had with this idea that I have is that the two songs, Holy, Holy, and God is Love, really are some of the more central themes of the album. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it's just my personal taste, really. It's not anything against the songs. What you uh, got against God? What you got against <laughs> Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against God. Uh, well, who am I to talk, really? <laughs> I, I, 
I adore this song, unexpectedly. Um, I think it's just because I guess it's so layered. I mean, that opening line, don't talk about my fa- my father, God is my friend, Yeah, means so much. If you've like looked into his history, Marvin Sr.'s history, their religion, uh, Let's talk about let's talk about Marvin Senior for a moment. Yeah, you want to you want to are we emotionally prepped to talk about you want to tell us Marvin the name Senior? the name we need of more this shots church? to talk about Marvin Senior. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, okay. Yeah, no, Colton, you talk about the church, and I'll talk about Marvin well, Senior. Well, I I was gonna give this over to Brandon because he's been okay. waiting to Brandon, to speak the, okay. the name of this church specifically the title and the religions of this church that uh, Marvin Senior was. Uh, mm. uh, uh, Pastor. Oh God, I'm so religiously illiterate. Illiterate. Okay, it's called the House of God, the Holy Church of the Living God, the Pillar and Grand of the Truth, the House of Prayer. Mm. That's its whole title. Mm-hmm. And the religion is um, uh, sort of a concoction, a mashup of uh, <laughs> Orthodox Judaism and Pentecostal Christianity. Correct. So, you know, nothing but the good stuff. Um, Truly, nothing like the real thing. Um, So that's that's truly all I wanted to say about that. Well, there was was a very tiny, like, faction though. Like there was, there's not a lot of these people. Yeah, Yeah. it's not a big congregation. There is one thing that I think you mentioned uh, in a conversation before we started recording, uh, which was yet another scene from *The Five Bloods*. Okay. And here's where I will um, officially announce my change.org petition. <laughs> For Delroy Lindo. Delroy Lindo needs an Oscar, <laughs> all right? I, that's point Dear God, I have never agreed with you on anything more <laughs> in this lifetime. This time. is it. This is it. When the gays and the straights come together, you know it's real. You know it's it's legit. Delroy Lindo gives a hell of a... You've, you've not created the actual change.org, but... I. We may need to. We may need to. Like, you know what? Oscar's if already he fucked is this year. not a candidate this year. No, don't even, like, don't gonna, even bother with other nominations. I'm going to scream. Just give it to I'm, him. I'm going to scream. My God. Okay. The, okay. <laughs> the character, the story of this movie, The Five Bloods, highly recommend it. Uh, um, it's about these uh, Vietnam vets. All right. They come back to Vietnam present day to retrieve some gold and uh, a buddy of theirs. Uh, died in the war. He was buried there. They're going to get his body, bring him home. Yeah. Um, and we kind of see, like, we get flashbacks of them in the war, but then we kind of see, like, um, through their personalities what what it did to them, like, coming home and, like, kind of living life after that. Um, and Living the very experiences that what's going on is talking about. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Uh, living the experience of, like, fighting in a war uh, where nobody has your back. Um, you go to a, a, a foreign country and everybody immediately hates you because the people you are fighting for are... I'm digressing. The, the character that Delroy Lindo plays is a uh, uh, MAGA hat-wearing... Trump supporter. Precisely. Mm. Melissa's vomiting in her mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Make sure you get that. It's It's important to note, too, he is the only one in the group that is a uh, Trump supporter. Yes, yes. Everybody else, the the other three guys, you know, they're they're, uh, liberal, whatever. Um, But... The complexities uh, like of this character, I don't, I, I don't even have the language to really yeah. get into it. But the 
at the end of his journey, this is a spoiler alert. So if you haven't watched the movie, uh, skip ahead, hit that, hit that button, whatever. Close your ears right now. Um, Delroy Lindo reaches the end of his journey, and it has been Um And he, um, these guys, they they find him, and he has a backpack full of gold, and they're gonna try and take the gold. Um, and they've they've got guns pointed at him, um, and they're making him dig his own grave, and he is singing this track god is love mm. um mm-hmm. just kind of to himself and they're they're constantly yelling at him to dig faster dig faster and uh, every time they say dig faster he's singing god is love louder and louder and oh, it gets it gets me emotional just thinking about it um it's it's because a, it's a prayer the yeah. whole song is one big old prayer amen yeah. and this is i mean it's important to note that Marvin is experiencing a return to his religion at this point in his well, life. Well, at least he's trying. He's trying. He's trying, trying real hard, and he's only trying for his deity anyway. <laughs> Back to his deity. <laughs> yes, let, please. Uh, g- let us get back to Father. Let us get back Father to Father God, Marvin. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> please. <laughs> Marvin Gay Sr., um, was a pastor at this crazy little church that they decided to be you, part of. You can't stop the twang now, I can can't you? Now. It's already, <laughs> she's in it. She's in it. It's already starting. I'm really sorry. The wine y'all. has set um, <laughs> A little BTS. Well, I want to hear more about Marvin Gaye Sr. Please. It's fine. Now, y'all it's fine. Um, so Marvin Gaye Sr. was uh, quite the disciplinarian and, and gave absolutely no positive reinforcement to any of his children, but especially for whatever reason, Marvin Gaye Jr. Zeroed in on him. Zeroed in on him. Everything that he did was the devil. Everything that he did was wrong. Everything that he did could be better, could be different, could be whatever it was. And if it wasn't exactly what Marvin Gaye Sr. wanted, he beat the hell out of him with a belt. And he'd make him get naked and beat him with a belt, which was normal discipline in their defense. It was normal discipline at the time in their sorts of neighborhood. Like, I remember my dad has stories about his mom actually chasing him and lifting up the bed with one hand and beating him with a belt with the other hand. My grandmother was 6'1". <laughs> so that was just God. how you had to deal with your kids at that time, especially your, if they were bigger than you. Yeah, your dad was not a small guy. No, absolutely not. But she had eight children, six of which were boys. So she was a warrior. Warrior. <laughs> full on. You know what I'm saying? But it's just like that was the normal discipline back then, though. Yeah. So that wasn't abnormal, but it definitely, I'm sure, shaped how Marvin grew up and developed. But also the fact that his dad never, even in his adult life with his success, never gave him the time of day, never said that he was proud of him. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot going on with Marvin Sr. A lot. too. And... Just to put some more juxtaposition on all this, he was a cross-dresser. And he was open about it in the home. So it wasn't like a secret that Marvin found out later. It was like he was preaching on Sundays and Marvin would come home for lunch on Monday to his dad in a dress. And so those two things are really hard for a little boy to comprehend, especially in a world where that's not normal. Nobody else is doing that. You can't talk about it. You can't go to church and talk about it. You can't go to school and talk about it. You can't bring it up to your mom. And she just said, like, Whatever Marvin Sr. wanted, she went along with. Yeah. I mean, she was his best friend and his nurturer and everything, but it was it was very much of the times that relationship was. And I think Marvin was 
sensitive enough that it shaped him in a way that wasn't great. I wanted to point out with this relationship between the two of them, too, um, a lot of the contention was from Marvin's music itself. Yep. Um, his yep. father never wanted him to make any secular music. No. Um, and There's of course, a story about him going home one time with like a briefcase and with a million dollars in cash in it. Mm, and he like threw yeah. it on the bed and he was like, Dad, what do you think of this? And he quoted the Bible and it was, I, I don't remember what the quote wow. was exactly, but it was something about... Um, about not having wealth and that's how you get to where you need to be. Like he just full on did not give a shit about Marvin's success at all, especially since it was related to that devil music. Yeah. And I mean, in, in somewhat of his father's defense, we're talking about a man who wrote sexual healing. Correct. (laughs) Marvin was filthy sometimes. And that is to our benefit, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Marvin. A really, no matter the lyrics, his music sensual. Like yes. even mm-hmm. I'm gonna take it back. Like I I said this yesterday. I I'll say it again. Save the children mm. by the end. I'm ready to fuck. <laughs> I'm ready for it. You save those babies. <laughs> you have to. It's for the children. Save the babies by making more babies. Making <laughs> more babies. It's for the future for generations to come. The future. Um, <laughs> let's get into uh, the following uh, track. Six, Mercy, Mercy Me, The Ecology. Um, I think this is really funny. My first note says Barry Gordy doesn't know what ecology is. <laughs> so, yeah, um, Barry Gordy had not heard the term. So this is something with Marvin Gaye. Um, a lot of people credit him for talking about environmentalism before a lot of other songwriters were. And especially early 70s, not a whole lot of people talking about that. Um so this is kind of just reflecting into Barry, Barry Gordy had, did not know what ecology was. And thanks to Miss Jean with us, uh, I have a definition for ecology for those who are not familiar. The branch of biology that deals with the relations of organisms to one another and to their physical surroundings. You dissected this so beautifully earlier. Would you do it again for us? Yeah. Um, I was really excited about that definition because of how it specifies the relation of organisms to one another and to their physical surroundings. Um, and I kind of like that breakup because we talk about the relations of organisms to one another. And I feel like we really hit that on, um, like, save the children, you know? Mm-hmm. There's that relation to one another. And then we come back to Mercy, Mercy Me, the ecology. And we also visit our physical surroundings because um, there's a lot of commentary um, within the lyrics about specific environmental issues. I mean, really specific too. you know, this isn't just your general plea of like save the world, but he actually hits on a couple of things. Um, poison is the wind, um, fish full of mercury, you know. Um, he acknowledges a couple of really specific uh, environmental issues that up to this point, uh, radiation underground was one that always stands out to me. Yeah, they weren't they weren't popularly discussed. Um, particularly, I mean, this song wound up being very popular, and it was crazy for it to be as popular as it was and be. Yeah, this was one of the three singles off of the record. Oh. Yeah. Wait, uh, number okay, two so out it was of three. The first, the last, and this one. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. Which, which is effectively how they serve in the album too. You got mm-hmm. you know your beginning, end, and your your middle piece. Yeah. Um. Oh, I made a note. Um, to tie back to um, also uh, the concept of the um, oh man this isn't that important actually it was just a weird little thing I went down on 
um, the uh, Silent Spring. The Silent Spring, yeah, because um, that had pu- been published like in '62, I believe, is what it is. Um, and it was this like study that was released again, tying back to like environmental issues, um, where they did this huge study and found that pesticides were negatively infecting the environment. Um, but there was so much pushback from like chemical production, like agencies and stuff, um, that they really fought to not get this information out. Um, anyways, I guess like the idea of poison into the wind and like stuff like that, um, kind of interconnecting. And it was also one of the big major studies of like environmental issues. I think too, um, another point with this particular track, um, we're talking about, you know, relationships of organisms to one another in their surroundings. This whole album is about the relationships between peoples and the surroundings that Marvin Gaye saw in the, the world that he was experiencing in America in the early 70s. So it's really like this whole thing is just so well tied into each other with all its different themes that it just really covers a whole lot of territory in a relatively short number of tracks. Crazy. I think we mentioned earlier, too, we were kind of discussing how Marvin Gaye writes these songs from the perspective, but we talked a lot about how he actually physically wasn't in the streets experiencing a lot of yeah. this. Right. He, like, he lived on the outsides of, like, town in his big mansion, like, mm-hmm. protests and things like this. He saw on TV. He wasn't there. He wasn't experiencing them. Um, and I think something that you kind of mentioned earlier was, especially with, like, uh, Flying High, that whole, like, zoomed out aspect. Yeah, the detachment. Um, yeah, there's, I, yeah. Trying to give the chance to visit that again. Well, I mean, it, like like I said earlier, it's not even like Marvin Gaye had been super involved in political movements mm-hmm. or super involved right. in, in yeah. current events up until this point. I mean, really, up until Tammy Terrell died, he wasn't paying attention to anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> Well, he holed oh. up and started watching the news, and then it was like, oh, yeah, oh, now, now I'm, you know, now I have a perspective, and now I have something to say, and so that's kind. of, I mean, really, in the in the grand scheme of things, that was he was late to the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit, yeah, but he felt so like that. I, one of the things I love is when you read his quotes about it. He still felt like he was like, I knew I had to do something. Absolutely. And music is what I do. Absolutely. So this is what I'll do. Um, it's preaching I can get behind. It is. Again, it's that like messenger of God. Like yeah. suddenly he saw what it was he was supposed to be saying and he's like, yeah. Oh, here it is. Right. I think that's why it's talking about how empathetic of a person he was is really important because he just really saw the world in a different way and uh, managed to translate that into things that people could connect with, even if he himself felt like he couldn't. As the song continues, uh, sort of slows down um, and does a weird vocal thing at the end. Will you explain what that <laughs> instrument is? Yes. Just, just so um, it turns into this. Uh, it's actually really interesting. So for, for musical folks out there. Um, Anybody else tune out? This, part- <laughs> this particular part of the song um, turns to a totally different key than the rest of the song. Um, so most of this song is in E major, uh, and then it moves up to F, and then at this very last part, it drops into a B flat minor, um, which is something that really, it just sounds completely outside of the key that you're listening to. So that's why this is such a striking part of the song, 
The other part of it is he has uh, a Mellotron playing, which a Mellotron is an instrument that was very popular in the 70s, um, not too terribly unlike modern-day synths, but not quite a synthesizer. You weren't actually messing with the sound waves themselves. It was kind of more similar to like an electric keyboard where it just had different sounds. Um, and the Mellotrons were especially unique in this regard with the, the sounds that they had on them. It's it's weird. It's haunting. It's a kind of a mashup of the Mellotron and the vocals and the strings all. It's very effective layering of different sounds happening at the same time. And at the end of the song, we actually get our first break, our first like breath of silence yeah. before we get into Right On. Mm-hmm. Um, and this sort of sounds like a jam sesh. Yeah, like it just, it's people hanging out. Um, it is. I actually had something to contribute um, about that. Because if you break outside of just listening to this album top to bottom, um, you can listen to some of the other, like the 40th anniversary release they released some of the material that they... Um, so one of the big deals about this album is, is a lot of the session musicians in it, this is like the first album that session musicians got any sort of acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a really big deal. Um, so people know their names. Um, I heard you guys discussing at the table specific names of specific artists that are credited on this album. And yeah. prior this to this album, that wasn't happening. About. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really interesting. But... Um, I think, uh, oh, shit, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Dang it. I had something. Where was my train of thought at? Sorry. Uh, while your train gets back on the, uh, the rails, um, can we talk about the person we were talking about? Or I, d- I don't know his name. He's the drummer. Let's talk about him. Miguel. His name is Earl DeRowan. I'm sure I just butchered that because he's Puerto Rican. <laughs> well... I'll carry the mic because now Melissa just can't handle it. Uh, did you? Uh, she's back. I do remember because you mentioned that this sounds like such a jam track. Sorry. Yeah, so you mentioned that it sounds like such a jam track, but it really was when you start was, listening to yes. some of the other recordings. So this particular guy was a drummer, and he it was major Latin influence, obviously, because he was Puerto Rican. Um, but major Latin influence that he brought to Motown, and he was a big drummer for Motown, and he ended up actually. Um, I don't know if y'all little babies know, but the song (laughs) The Ghetto by Donny Hathaway, he was also the drummer on that song. And Mm. if you listen to that song and listen to Right On, they are very similar. Like, you can hear a lot of the same little inflections and stuff like that. And It's important to point out, too, that this is not the only song in the album that has Mm -mm. uh, Latin percussion and Latin music influences in it. You hear a little bit of hand percussion in What's Going On. Um, this song is kind of like the the capital of, of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But they, it seem, kind of seems like they brought in the best of the best for this one in particular. And it sounds like it. Like, it, like it sounds... Because he was not the drummer on the other song. So it's like they, they said, we want him for this, for this particular sound. And this, this song in particular, considering it's like seven and a half minutes long, which a lot of these songs are longer songs in general, but this is one that really sticks out. Um... It's really like the moment that Marvin Gaye gives for all of the instrumentalists to kind of get mm-hmm. their acknowledgement. It's more of an instrumental track than it is a vocal one, which is completely different from the rest of the album, which is almost highlighting vocals in particular. Um, so it really just gives kind of a nod to all the musicians that worked on this 
particular album. And to name some of the, the groups that were in this, you have the Funk Brothers, who were a band that were a Motown recording session band. Everywhere. Uh, you also had the Andales, or the Andels, um, which were the uh, female backing group, uh, vocal group that you hear on a lot of the tracks. And they themselves had a long list of recordings that they made, not only with Marvin Gaye, but with many, many other artists as well. So I guess now we'll go into the next track, um, Holy Holy. And I want to read a quote. Wait, can I, can oh, I yeah, oh, take yes. a moment? Just because I wanted to revisit uh, one of the things about Right On um, is how heavily, I think I mentioned some of it before, but how heavily it usually utilizes, thank you, um, the, like, the slang of the time. And that's a consistent theme throughout the whole album. Um, but like... The lyrics of that particular song, a yeah. little weird, you know, like they're a very vague, really. Um, I think a lot of it, it sounds very improvised as he's going along, but it's, it's the fact that, yeah, it's such good use of like very um, convert, like conversational slang of the time. And it never sounds like kind of hokey or anything, but it's, it's a very interesting aspect. Um, and I think it gets the chance to really shine on that particular track. That was all I had to conclude. Sorry. I'm glad you interjected. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Um, now we'll go to Holy Holy because it's, it's a total change of pace. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to read this quote um, that I was reading in that Divided Soul book about secular music. This is from uh, Bishop Rawlings, I think, is who's part of that Orthodox Judaism, mm-hmm. Pentecostal Christianity party. Um he says, the only musical obligation that we have, oh, I'm sorry, the only musical obligation is that we make joy- joyful noise, and we further believe that music should not be used for secular purposes. And I think it's really interesting that uh, this secular music has um, pulled from religious influences and is, in fact, perhaps not more effective, but more clear than uh, most religious teachings. Um, I think it just reaches more people. Yeah, yeah. Because, it's because Christian music isn't necessarily on the radio, so it's, you're not getting it out to as many people as you would get secular music out to. Yeah. So it has a bigger effect. But Something you saw with um, George Harrison also, actually. Um, his solo work is kind of marked with um, the combination of Christianity and, and Buddhist beliefs that he had. Um in particular, um, he has uh, his solo album, um, All Things Must Pass. He has several songs that talk directly about um, religion, and it's kind of just his ide- ideology of religion. So, similar idea. I think, I think this album in particular is really special because it's one of the first times that you really see the gospel roots taking effect in in a popular album yeah. yeah where it's like he's he's coming in here saying this is where i come from this is how i grew up this is where i get all of my influence and people took it and ran with it versus you know back then people were getting i mean jackie wilson got completely um disowned by his family because he decided yeah. to sing secular music over gospel or opera which is what he was trained in so it's like people were, that was, the two things never went together. And this is one of the first albums where it, the, he really meshed it together and made it 
popular and like brought church into. So like, you know, this is this is the whole reason Destiny's Child could get away with the gospel medley at the end of Independent Women. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I mean, this is kind of the beginning of that where it was going like this is the stuff that's going on the radio now and the neighborhoods were really eating it up because this is how people really live in the neighborhood. It is not one or the other. It is both. It's authentic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you get the idea of, like, the, the title spelling, holy, holy. Mm-hmm. You know, he has the idea of being completely holy. And I think it's um, it's really a reflection that he really felt that this return to his religion was going to help him feel better, which, unfortunately... I don't know that it really did in the long run, but it was still very important to him in the context of this album and the years after it. I just wanted to make a note. Aretha, Miss Aretha Franklin, uh, does a cover of this song on her 1985 album. Ooh. Okay. We'll go to church and we'll go to Sunday Sunday service. Um, We ain't paying for it, though. Uh Oh. Sorry, easy. So we've reached the final track, Inner City Blues, Make Me Wanna Holler. Mm. And this seems to me like, Holla. maybe not quite this literal, but like the answer to the question. Like, mm. I mean, we talked about that this was like bookending. Yeah, that's what something you and I were talking about. Mm. What What's going on? Ask the question, what's going on with everybody? And you get kind of a sweeping overview of everything that's happening in the world. And to me, it seems more like um, the answer that you would get to somebody as you're passing by, right? Yeah. Where inner city blues is the real answer to the question, and it gets down to the nitty-gritty yeah. of what is actually happening. Later on in the party, you find that person, they take you in the corner, and you say, what's really happening? What you were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This song is probably the most notable out of the entire album. Um, I have mentioned to Brandon before that different parts of the song have been sampled in in many other songs since the release of it. Um, But in particular, the bass line has been sampled uh, at least 98 times Mm. by artists of different, uh, you know, fame and, and quality level, you know. Right. Um. So this really is one of the most signature tracks on this album and of one of Marvin Gaye's career, really. It's also the third of the three singles. Yes, yes. it yes. is the third of the three. So singles. they released it uh, like in store, like chronological order, like. Yeah. Essentially, yeah, the beginning, the middle, and the end of the album, yeah, would have been released. I, I would like to to touch on uh, Jeannie's point earlier about Marvin being kind of in the in the clouds. Like, he's not really part of all these protests. He's not really part of what's on the nitty-gritty ground. Yeah. Um, which is where, he, of course, he starts this album. And if we're talking about this being the answer to the question, oh, yeah. isn't it interesting that the co-writer on this particular song um, was a handyman for two record labels for almost 10 years before this was his big break, this particular song... <laughs> was his big break. And this is the most real in the street song on like the album. his answer. Exactly. Wow. From a real person living in this world. Wow. Yeah, it's definitely... James Nix, everybody. J- yes, snaps for James. <laughs> Started from the bottom, now we're here. <laughs> he defined it. I think this song in particular, too, um, 
one thing, uh, Jeannie has this in her notes, but I, I liked it as well, how he has a line in it about how he can't pay his taxes. Mm-hmm. Marvin Gaye didn't pay his taxes. Mm-hmm. He owed he did millions he of owed dollars. Millions he did. of dollars. He smoked it up his nose. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah, that's I ain't the truth. To lie about it. We're here yeah, for facts. I mean, up his nose. So, <laughs> all the tax money, the mortgage money, the car payment money, the baby mama money. While, he smoked it up his nose and in his arm. While <laughs> we all can relate to not having the money to pay our taxes, I feel Marvin Gaye in particular really cannot pay his taxes. Mm-hmm. Imagine knowing millions He lost of his house. Jesus. He lost everything. No, they they came you. over and seized Jesus. everything in his house. He had to move in with his parents at the house he bought. I don't know why I said it like that. He parents. had to move in with his parents at the house that he bought them, which, I mean, ultimately brought him around to death. But, well, you know, it's fine. That's what we're talking about. That Story for later. another day. <sighs> Look it up, y'all. But no, um, yeah, this track is very signature. And a very important thing to note out is towards the end of the song, when we have the reference to Mother Mother, mm-hmm. what's going on? Um, the loops is back. It really ties it all together. And this is where our summation of the, the song cycle is. It really puts it all back right onto the track. It and it connects not only into the cycle of this album itself, but also to the cycle of all the violence and everything else that is going on, not just in the time frame of this album, but as we're seeing in the world around us nowadays. It's never ending. It's all a cycle. And it's really the, the brilliance of this whole album is how it's still endured to this day. Um, it is an important thing to note um, about this album in particular, that as of this year, um, Rolling Stone named it as the greatest album of all time. Which Good for them. Boom. How do you feel about that, Colton? I have my own opinions about yep. Rolling Stone. And what as an they? institution? Um, as an institution. Yeah. But we don't want, that's not what this podcast is about. Uh, no. We're and not they trying still, to have them cancel us. Shut the hell up, Colton. Regardless of what we're saying, they still have done great things for rock and roll yes, and music in general. Thank you, Rolling Stone, for everything you've done. <laughs> also, if you want to sponsor us, thanks. If, I mean, if anybody is out there, like, listening and, like, Thinking, hey, they could use my cash. I mean, like, weird, but Even we're not going to fight you. Microphones, on it. we'd appreciate it. We'd love <laughs> it. Uh, you know, I thought about asking you guys some um, generic questions about the album, but I, I myself was surprised of, of the. I surprised myself. My uh, favorite songs are the religious songs. Mm. Um, I think "God Is Love" is my number one. Is there a song on this album that, like? Maybe not on the first listen, but like on the fourth or fifth, you were like, oh, you know what? This one right here. Mercy Mercy has always been my favorite mm. since I was little. So, um, you know, I don't know. I don't I don't know. My dad introduced me to this album when I was five or six. It was really early. It was one of the first albums I ever learned. And that was just the one that always stuck. And I always remembered it. And we used to harmonize to it. And it just just got me you know i don't know plus i really like the end because the end's weird yeah yeah it's great it's perfect like it's just a great ending it's just so that's fantastic either either one of you you have an opinion or just what's your favorite what's the fave 
I think my thing I was going to say is something that's, I guess, weird for me is I had not actually listened to this album. I've been cramming it in in the last two weeks and doing Same. intense research. I'm not familiar with it, um, you know, which uh, I guess is its own interesting beast. Um, uh, notably, I really like Right On. Uh, instrumentally, I love it. And I mentioned how it much really I love is. It's a the jam. use. It really is. I love it that. It stands on its own. And I love the use of the slang on it. And I love how much it, it just grounds you in a time and a place, you know, like feels like you're at a cookout. It's, it's yeah, yeah, it's you're there, and the same thing too. The other like another track that I think I really love is, um, I guess as you mentioned, like as you listen to it more, um, was what's happening, brother. And again, it's just that like that conversational tone of like, here we are, here you are, here I am. Um, I don't, yeah, they just stand out to me. I think two things about this album in particular. Just two? Just two things. Two. So first of all, uh, the track that drew me into this album and will always eternally be my favorite is Inner City Blues. Mm -hmm. okay. It is just I do one agree. of the top examples of rawness in songwriting and really having you no... Thank you, James <laughs> Nix. No emotional walls between singer and listener. Um really, and all of the musical things that are happening. This is, I mean, it's one of the grooviest tracks of all time. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, if nothing else from talking about this album, watch The Five Bloods. It watch is it. spectacular movie. It talks about difficult things to talk about without being too preachy or on one side or the other. There's a lot of understanding and attempts to uh, um, kind of cross a divide that we have in our, our world nowadays. And I, I just really appreciate that Spike Lee put the kind of effort into this movie that he did. Ms. G. Well, I was going to say not to put the cherry on top of it all, but I feel like that's something the album itself, returning yeah. back to it, is yeah. really yeah. capable of doing. That's, yeah. that's It's very relevant, and it also... It doesn't lock you in, like you said, on one side or another. Like, mm -hmm. there's a really nice living, breathing aspect to it that's much more it's complicated much than just black or white. It's very much, here's the problems, now what are we going to do about mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh. Relevant then, relevant now. Uh, timeless. Beautifully so. Well... This also just listen to the album if you haven't. If you listen have the oh album, oh I don't it's care a how classic. old you are, listen it's a to classic. it. Especially right now in 2020, y'all, it will make all the sense. It, it will, will not, it not will soothe you, it will cradle you, it, it will, will make you, you feel so much better about what's going on. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh God. I had to put it together. Okay. Um, this is why I get paid the zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to the album. Um, if you find any interesting facts, please let us know um, somehow if you're friends with us on social media. If you're not, you're going to have to find us. Um, the next time we get together, we're going to talk about an album that's my favorite. Truly the reason Colton's we are doing this. Out, um, Colton is going to set us down and take us extensively <laughs> through Beach Boys' 12th 
11th album? 11th, I believe. 11th album, Pet Sounds. Um, so tune in, drop out. Wait, how does that go? Tune in, turn on, drop out. Drop out. Something like said. that. What, what, I missed uh, one of them, but don't worry about it. Okay. Jeannie will be forgiven. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll see you guys next time. Thank you for having us, Brandon. Oh, my God. It's a pleasure. Yeah, Come thanks, over Brandon. anytime. Let's have tacos or something. Goodbye. Let's, oh, okay. It. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Bye. square.